my own mentors told me I was wrong. I should take it down. Or you, you were right, but you ain't have to, you know, publish it. And I was like, wow. So I'm to censor myself. Um, but it was in that experience that I learned to monetize my talents. I started consulting with a, a local civil rights attorney, um, produced my first press conference, sent press releases to the same, the same news station that just let me laid, laid me off, you know? So that is when I got a taste of entrepreneurship, a taste of what it, what it felt like to get a check with my name on it. Hey everyone, you are listening to Tips from the Field, a podcast from the Memphis Association of Black Journalists, and this is Brandy, your podcast producer. For this episode, we are giving you another opportunity to listen in on one of our monthly meetings. This meeting is from January 2021, and we're talking about planning your pivot. If you're looking to make some changes in your media career, you'll definitely want to hear what our panel from this meeting has to say. We had MLK50 founder, Wendy C. Thomas, and we had producer, author, and journalist, Georgia Dawkins, and also career coach and author, Brittany Cole. These panelists passed along so much insight and so much valuable information for anyone who is thinking about how to make that transition, and we're grateful they took the time to talk to us about how they did it. And just so you know, if you want to come to our monthly meetings, you can follow MABJ on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and we post the meeting information there. Or you can sign up for the MABJ newsletter at our website, mabjtn.org, and we'll send you the meeting information each month. But right now, let's jump into this meeting from earlier in 2021 about planning your pivot. Okay, so let's get uh, right into it. Uh, Ms. Thomas. Uh, briefly, uh, tell us your story and how did you know it was time to pivot? How did I know it was time to pivot? Um, so I knew it was time to pivot probably in March of 2014. By that time, I'd been a columnist at the Daily Paper for uh, almost 11 years. And I wrote a lot about um, things that white people didn't want to hear about. They, the paper, I think, tolerated me. I mean, I had a lot of allies in the newsroom. Um, Richard was one, we were there together at the same time. Over time, I, I got lots of death threats. Well, not lots, I think it's like three or four. And then in March of 2014, a reader th- threatened to rape me in an email. Um, and my bosses didn't take it very seriously at all. And, and then in, I think the end of April or May, they reassigned me from being a columnist, I was an award-winning columnist, um, to being a criminal justice editor which is nothing wrong with doing that, but I'd had that job 20 years prior and I felt like it was a demotion. And so I can remember before I ended up leaving, I packed up my desk. If you saw my desk in the newsroom, there was nothing on it. They'd be like, is Wendy still here? And I'd be like, no, here it is, it's in the drawer. But I had my stuff ready because I was going to be on the way out. And then one day I got a note from HR to come talk to them and they offered me a lot of money if I wanted to leave. It was a lot of money. Uh, more money than I've ever gotten in one time um, in my life. And so September 11, 2014, I left. So I had to make a pivot because I had health insurance, you know, through the end of the year, and I had some money I could live on for a little while, but not forever. And so I'd always had this idea um, back from when I was coordinating the paper's coverage of the um, 40th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, that what would it look like as journalists to mark the 50th anniversary? of his assassination. And so I applied for a fellowship, Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, um, got accepted. 
uh, went there, incubated this project, and uh, then we launched it in April 2017. Wow, good stuff. Uh, Ms. Dawkins. Wendy, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but I'm also so glad that you pivoted accordingly, you know, and that you're so successful now. That's very frightening. Um, for me, I was, I don't want to even say similar situation, but it took a layoff for me to really see my earning potential to see the value that I was already bringing to the, to the newsroom. And so it was 2016, I had written a blog post about what it felt like to be other in the newsroom. And my perspective was black, female, young, okay? They didn't like that either. Um, and it, when I say they, I don't mean just my newsroom at that time. I mean an industry like, a stroke, a broad stroke of the industry of how I felt. Um, and I felt very isolated, especially in the situation that I was in as the only Black producer. In response to the blog going viral and being picked up, I think all digitocracy had picked it up at the time. The Journalism and Women's Symposium originally published it, and it resonated in the hearts of so many female journalists, but also Black journalists and other journalists of color. It was so frightening that they called me into HR to ask me, do you feel safe here? Is there something we can do to make you feel better? And I was like, wow, that's what you got from that? You think it's about me and you don't see that it's an industry problem and you also think it's about you. Yes, and it's an industry issue. And so I reiterated that to them, but it was a matter of months later and I felt it coming. You know how you can feel the paper trail. Wendy, I had already cleaned out my desk too. When they walked me to HR, and said they needed my badge after the morning meeting, after the, you let me sit through this meeting that was already 30 minutes too long, okay? It was already too long. I stacked my show, assigned my stories. I'm sitting at my desk doing what I do because I'm a machine. And they called me to HR, asked for my badge, walked me outside. All I, all I had was my purse because I, I saw the writing on the wall. And so I went through a depression after that because it was very hard to find a job because I spoke truth to the system and people didn't like that. My own mentors told me I was wrong. I should take it down or you, you were right, but you ain't have to, you know, publish it. And I was like, wow. So I'm to censor myself. Um, but it was in that experience that I learned to monetize my talents. I started consulting with a, a local civil rights attorney, um, produced my first press conference, sent press releases to the same, the same news station that just let me laid, laid me off, you know? So that is when I got a taste of entrepreneurship, a taste of what it, what it felt like to get a check with my name on it, my name on it for the services that I provided, no middleman. I did this. And so that led to me, I kept having to figure out, I feel like I'm always pivoting. I feel like I'm, I'm low-key a point guard. You know, I'm just, where we at with it? You know, where's the goal now? Because you're moving it, okay? So <laughs> this, is, this is where I am today. Um, but that was 2016. And that six-week, eight-week period from being laid off on April Fool's Day, my mama thought it was a joke, y'all. I called my mama. I told her they laid me off. She said, why are you playing? And I'm like, bruh, I'm like in the parking lot crying. Like I'm not even, it's not even a joke. This is real life. But I'm so glad that it hurt the way it did. 
I'm so happy that it happened when it did because then that led me to Sister Circle, a show that had no name, had no cast, had no color, just a concept. And they charged me to develop that out. I didn't know what I could do until I did it. And it took being forced out of an industry that never wanted me anyway for me to see what else I could do. Wow. Miss um, Cole, uh, when did you know it was time to pivot? Yes, I am loving the alignment here because I was also laid off. But let me just say, um, you know, again, leaning into a pivot is a shift. So being a point guard, Georgia, I love that because I, I feel the same way. Like we are always pivoting. And so for me, I've had I've had several pivots. I'll share my, my latest one into entrepreneurship, similarly um, being laid off. So I share with you all, I spent 12 years at Pfizer and I was in this position where I built great brand equity at my company. And so it was comfortable. It was comfortable, uh, but there was more that I wanted. And so I think that when we're thinking about like our pivots, I heard in the introductions, a lot of you are, are in this space of, of transition. Do I, do I relocate or do I, you know, stay at the company? I'm looking for a new role, right? And that sometimes focuses us, focuses us at looking externally when really the question is more of an internal question. It's more about what do you want? And that was my signal of when I knew that it was time for me to take the package and leave Pfizer instead of staying and playing it safe because there was more that I wanted and there was this box that I felt like I was being confined to stay in. So it's like, hey, this is a really great company and you should stay here and you can do this and maybe in you know four years or five years when I knew, no, there's, there's more that I'm being led to do now. And so I would say that for me, it was both that kind of push to the, to the end uh, of the ledge. And I had to make the decision to jump knowing that betting on me is the best bet that I can make. Um, and so that, that was when I knew. All right. Well, uh, well, as far as that uh, turning point for me, uh, radio has always been a changing industry since like about 1995 when it became uh, legal for stations to own more than, uh, well, station groups to own more than one uh, or two stations in a market. So now you got like one company that owns like four or five, sometimes six and in uh, one particular city. And uh, I got into radio in like 1994. This happened in like 1995, so it's it's sort of been gradually happening uh, my entire career, and uh, that's kind of one of the reasons I've always kept what I uh, refer to as a real people's job. And uh, but it wasn't until about maybe 2013 or or so when you know the reality of that started setting in, and that's when we started seeing a lot of uh, longtime radio personalities being let go from stations where they had been like on the air for like 20 years or more. And uh, as uh, years went by, it started happening more and more. And uh, of course it's still happening today. And, uh, you know, thankfully, you know, one of the uh, real people's job that uh, I actually uh, had and did for a lot of years was uh, a lot of nonprofit consulting, but a lot of PR and, uh, and marketing work and things like that. And it uh, just so happens that one of my uh, clients uh, ended up being an insurance company. And um, one day, you know, sitting down talking to the owner, he was like, you know what, Myra, I think you'd be good at this. Uh, you should really look into it. And I had already spent like the past uh, couple of years before that kind of helping the uh, salespeople to uh, develop, you know, selling tools and things like that. 
and uh, and he was like, you know, you, you should you should really consider that. Uh, you know, I didn't kind of realize at the time he was like offering me a job because I don't do too well at jobs because you know I've kind of always done my own thing uh, for years and uh, ended up uh, I actually you know got into it ended up liking it and ended up being sort of halfway good at it and uh, and basically you know that just kind of led to me doing my own thing last year and uh, that's 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 kind of how my uh, how my pivot kind of kind of took place. But uh, moving on here, uh, Ms. Dawkins, uh, can you tell us um, what were some of the pitfalls that uh, you encountered in your uh, in your journey? It's going to be money for me, Myron. <laughs> I love it. Okay. That, I could, that, I could that, explain, but I think we all felt that, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's always money. It's never enough. Even on the most glamorous job I had in developing a talk show for women of color, I only earned $100 a day. And the check was late. Very, very late. So very late that I could not afford to drive to the studio to do the job that I moved from Florida to do. It was never enough money. It's always been money. Either it's allowing someone to tell you what you're worth, or devaluing yourself because you don't know what you were. And so this whole entrepreneurship journey has been about discovering my worth and charging for that. No, you can't talk to me for free. No, I can't read it. No, no, I can't read it. So learning to say no and learning to, to value what I have, to value all of my gifts, to put a price on every single thing that I do, that's been the journey. It's been money. It's always money. Well, I, and I can definitely relate to uh, to that, Miss Thomas. Um, let's talk about your uh, pitfalls. No, we don't have enough time to talk about all the things I wish I could have. I would have done differently, including not starting this alone. Starting with a team, somebody partnering with somebody who knew the business side, because I know the journalism side. Like Georgia said, money, I felt that deeply. Um, the first year of launching MLK50, I lived off credit cards and ran up either thirty-seven, dollars $38,000 worth of credit card debt, which is insanely stressful when I would wake up at night if I remembered it. Um, I couldn't go back to sleep because that's a lot. At least it was a lot to me. It, was, it felt like a lot. You know, I think it was hard initially to get um, people with money to see my vision or I didn't do a good enough job of articulating my vision so that people would support it. And even to this day, most of our money comes from outside Memphis. What I found is that when you're committed to dismantling the status quo, which MLK50 is, um, the people who profit from the status quo aren't going to give you money to help destroy it. So that's meant we've had to be um, more intentional Sorry, my dog is over here tripping. Be more intentional about looking for outside resources, national foundations, um, and that sort of thing. Yep, there's there's a saying, oh, I have it on my wall over here. If you haven't felt like quitting, your dreams aren't big enough. So I have to just keep that in mind. Wow. Uh, Ms. Cole, pitfalls. 
So good. So good. A adding to what's been shared, I would say my biggest pitfall has been me. And when I think about my, my pivots while I was in corporate, my pivots as an, as an entrepreneur, um, and all of our pivots last year into this year, uh, one word comes to mind and that's grief. And we don't often associate grief with the change and loss that happens to us professionally. But I grieved moments in corporate where, where I was the only one and like, do I say something or do I not? Because some of the people telling me to be quiet look just like me um, or whether it was the layoff or whatever it was. And so I think for me, my part of my personal growth has been one in recognizing and helping to um, really redefine resilience, which is what my book is about. And the, and the reason why I think it's so critical for us as Black people is because we have had to be resilient, right? And so I think oftentimes we navigate our professional lives from this place of gratitude that causes us to shrink and not make the bold moves that are best for us, right? Because we're so grateful for the role, right? We want to show up and be strong. We want to show up and be the first one and the last one and plan the potluck. So I think for, for me, it's been really repositioning and saying, one, let me own where I am, the loss that I feel, knowing that I don't have to walk in here with a cape and a mask every day. Um, and, and really owning my, my growth process through that has really helped me, um, both on the employee side and as well as an entrepreneur so that now, um, I own my worth and then I recognize that no client, right, uh, nonprofit, government, um, private can pay me what I'm worth, but I can charge what is worth my time. Um, and so that is the, that is now the mindset because I've done some of the due diligence to deal with some of the gr grief experiences, which is what they are, um, to show up in, in a space of resilience that I believe is more authentic, that is more aligned with purpose and that is more courageous, but also includes the joy that sometimes we lack because we're trying to act like it's perfect when we know that it's painful. It's pitfalls for me, uh, with, Basically, uh, yeah, I guess uh, money could have, you know, sort of been one. But, you know, all of these years of doing radio, I had actually got used to being uh, broke and poor. And, uh, you know, anytime you can look out your window and actually see the poverty line, like right next to your house, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of used to it. But uh, I guess one uh, real pitfall, I guess, uh, I encountered was uh, – that uh, along with uh, radio, I had a lot of other occupations going on at the same time. And uh, because, you know, honestly, radio had really became unstable, uh, an unstable industry to have a uh, career in. So I always made sure I was doing other things. But when you do so many things, sometimes it's hard to focus on that one thing that you're actually halfway decent at. Especially when in your head you think you you're thinking you're like really 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 good at all of them, when you know sometimes you have to sort of learn the hard way. So you know I did a lot more than what I'm doing right now, but you know I had to kind of dial it back a little bit so that I could focus on you know maybe three or four things instead of you know ten to fifteen, and uh, and that way I could really get good at a few things rather than being just you know okay and a whole lot of stuff. And uh, of course, you know, uh, the money thing was, you know, it was a motivating factor that, you know, not having a lot of it, that really helped me to, you know, to somewhat switch gears and everything too. But uh, Miss Thomas, if you don't mind sharing, uh, how did you secure um, 
I know you mentioned the credit cards and everything uh, earlier. Uh, you know, how did you secure your funding? How difficult was the uh, was the process? And I know you kind of touched on a little bit of that before. What I've learned being a fundraiser or reluctant fundraiser because it doesn't come easily to me is that money follows money and fundraising is all about relationships. So we were lucky enough to have our fiscal sponsor connect us to the Cerdina Foundation, which I'd never heard of. They believed in what we were doing and gave us an initial grant. I think it was $100,000, which at the time I was like, oh my God, at least I can pay my mortgage through the end of the year. Um, And we had more money to um, hire freelancers and and writers and editors. And then after we had the money from Cerdina, it was easier to approach the other, another foundation. They want, they always want to know who's supporting you, right? We could say, well, we have support from this organization. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll sign on for a little bit. And then I think the caliber of the journalism that we were doing and the time we were doing it helped raise our profile nationally. And so when we would approach another foundation, they would say, oh yeah, I've heard of you, right? Um, We might ask one foundation to make an introduction to someone at another foundation. So it's a slow process. Yeah, it's a slow process. But right now, I'm really, really excited about where we are financially. Um, We were worried that, uh, you know, during the pandemic, funding would shrink dramatically. We would not have been surprised by that. But it's actually um, by far our best year ever um, in terms of foundation, national foundation donors and individual donors. But like I said, a lot of that still comes from outside Memphis. So one of our goals for 2021 is to have more Memphis supporters, um, even if it's just $5 a month, right? Or one time $10 donation. But yeah, we want the people that were, um, the community that we're writing for to, to feel invested in some way. Um, but of course, our news is always free. Um, it's never behind a paywall, if you believe it should be accessible to as many people as possible. Um, and that's, I think, particularly important in a city with um, a poverty rate as high as the rate in Memphis. Ms. Cole, um, you don't mind sharing? Yeah, your process. For me, for funding, my funding, uh, quite transparently, quite transparently came from my uh, severance package. And so I always like to just be honest about my entrepreneurship journey and story, because sometimes um, it can be made to look so sexy on social media. And that's, as you heard today, um, not the whole truth. Um, So I leave with a parachute. I leave with about um, 11 and a half months of salary because I had worked at Pfizer for so long. And so I used that money to invest in my business. I'll say that even as I was side hustling, that was though my same model, using my salary to grow the revenue in my business. And I think that that is um, so critical for um, entrepreneurial minded leaders that want to, you know, one day own your own business. I think it's important to see yourself at your company as a brand, which means that you operate through this lens of not waiting to be grateful for what you're tapping the shoulder for but being intentional about looking for the opportunity that will put you closer to the vision of the life that you want to live. So quick story for me, I spent nine and a half years in sales at Pfizer and knew that one day I wanted to own my own business. And part of that was understanding how did marketing and branding work? Sales was too far down at the end of the funnel. It's the execution side. I wanted to understand how are the decisions made that then inform the sales team what to do. And so instead of learning about marketing on my dime, I said, Hey, I need to get into marketing at Pfizer to understand how this works at an organization, right? At a business that is doing really well. So I just share that with you to encourage you that 
use, again, I, I, I lead with every experience as an opportunity for continuous improvement because even if you're in a toxic place, don't stay there, right? If it's toxic, look to transition. But even if you're in a place where you're like, this isn't it, I want to encourage you to think like a business owner, right? To think like you are the brain and to say to yourself, how can I leverage where I am right now to get to where I want to be? And that may mean, right, taking a more proactive approach to your personal development. So you're getting those skills and that development that you need that then helps you in your business. So that's what helped me um, to grow Career Thrivers um, and to exceed our revenue goal last year in, in, in a pandemic year. Wow, Ms. Dawkins. It's the math for me, okay? I didn't have a profit model. When when I took my leap, when I made my leap in 2018, and that's, I, I mentioned that because that's when I became a full-time entrepreneur, but I was still doing like, you know, the producing contract jobs on the side. So I never focused on how much money my company was bringing in because I'm, I was funding it out of pocket. And so what had happened was my book became my revenue. My book became the, the profit model. Um, initially, I announced that I was writing a book and I invited my audience to uh, donate to my next chapter. And so I got thousands of dollars in donations, but that was just enough for like, you know, a couple months. It wasn't enough to sustain me. And so I was starting a lot of things, but I didn't have a plan for it. And so y'all know, you know, lack leads to depression. So then I was like, well, God, is this really what you told me to do? Because I don't have the money to do it. I look kind of crazy. I told all these people that you told me to jump, you know, you said there was something bigger for me on the other side. And so I got in position. I was obedient, but there was so much more I needed to learn in that journey. And that's just my experience. That was my journey. And I believe that was my journey so that it doesn't have to be yours. You can save up. You can, you can put back and invest in your company. Now be your first investor, be your first investor. Do it, do it now. If you have a thought, that's a seed. Put some money on that thing. Put down on it and then see how that grows. But for me, uh, a lot of my frustration as an entrepreneur and depression as an entrepreneur, because God knows I had to go to therapy because it's hard working with me. I'm me, you know, <laughs> I, I'm the entrepreneur. I'm the CEO. I'm marketing. I'm social media. It's a lot of people up in here. We need to talk. You know, so I needed money for therapy. I needed money for me to be healthy so that my brand could be healthy. And so, yeah, now I'm in a space of transition where I'm like, I don't want to keep pulling out of pocket. I can't keep coming out of pocket. I have to make my side hustle, which is what the LLC has been, my bread and butter. This, I have to be my primary source of income. I, I'm going to jump in real quick here, um, Meyer Mays. I, um, we are getting close to time. It's 11.56, and we're supposed to wrap up at noon. So I want to make sure that if anybody has any questions, we can do some quick fire questions um, for our panelists for the next five to ten minutes so, um, so we can stay on time. But Myron, I'll turn it back over to you. And if you want to put it in the chat, raise your hand. Um, Elle, I know you're paying attention uh, to the um, – to the room as well. Just let everybody know somebody has a question they'd like to ask. Yeah, we definitely uh, want to get that uh, 
answered. Uh, real quick, a good thing about insurance is that it's like it's very low cost when it comes to starting up. And the good thing about that was I didn't have a lot of money left over as far as my years in radio. So I started my uh, started my agency out of my apartment uh, right when the pandemic hit. Then I had to eventually move out of the apartment and actually get real office space because everything really really took off really 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 fast uh i did i had no idea that it would uh even you know go as great as it's going right now and uh all you know during the pandemic and it's like insurance was the very last thing i ever thought that i'd be doing you know i always thought that i'd end up you know doing some type of radio for the rest of my life and uh and you know it just turned out to be something totally different so you know you have to keep a uh you have to keep an open mind you know and that's and that's the way i i basically see it and you have to you know it's just like uh you know i think uh one of your ladies just mentioned you have to see yourself doing what you want to do and see yourself being successful at it and uh and that's that's basically you know how things have worked out uh for me uh really quick do we have any uh any questions from uh any other audience? Hello, um, I'm Hadia. I wanted to say um, thank you for this. This has been amazing. Um, I work an overnight shift, so I was a little late to coming in. But I wanted to ask, um, when you're taking that leap of faith um, on your dreams or on your goal, how do you find balance if you currently have a nine to five? Or is balance not something you should even think about? Should you just focus completely on the thing that you're trying to make? I would okay. that um, I think you said it lastly, it, it's not necessarily about balance because you're not going to have that that equal weighting. Um, I love Tashonda Duckett. I don't know if you all follow her, but she's the CEO of Chase Consumer Bank. And she talks about living your life like a diversified portfolio. So meaning that you allocate different percentages based on the market or based on what's happening in your life at the time. So I think that becomes a personal journey, but just know that sometimes you are giving more over here than you are over there, whatever that looks like for you. But um, yeah, the, the side hustle life is tough. So you got to find, yes, as Richard said, the, the right allocation for you in that, in this season that you're in right now. I just wanted to add to that, that I would, um, if you're still working, you know, your full-time job, I would invest in yourself first. So if you have to get up a few hours early to work on your dream and then go into the job, and maybe they don't get your absolute best, but you're not going to get fired, do that. Because I think it's really hard at the end of the day, after you've spent all your energy combating whatever you've had to do in your day job, to then say, okay, now I'm going to spend three hours. More likely, it's just going to be tough to do that. So, so put yourself first, and give yourself the best of you, the best of your energy, brain power, and then, and, you know, do your job. Well, I was going to say that, you know, you, you have to be, you have to know yourself and be honest with yourself. I came to the conclusion a long time ago that I was always going to suck as an employee. And, uh, and basically that, that is kind of what, you know, what drove me to do a lot of the things that, uh, that I'm doing. I'm thankfully, uh, I'm thankful that I was blessed to be able to, uh, to find something that, you know, I was pretty good at doing and it turned out to be profitable and it actually worked based off of the things that I had been doing uh, my entire career. 
Uh, sometimes balance is going to be really, really, really tough to find. But, you know, if you, if you have that fire inside you, uh, you're going to work it out. You know, you're going to find, you're going to find a way around those obstacles and you're going to make it work for you. And, uh, and that, that's what you have to keep that passion and that fire inside. I see um, Candice Gray, and then we're going to go to Marvin Frank. Yes, thank you guys so much. Uh, this has been very inspiring. Uh, my question surrounds um, money pricing. I know, you know, in Memphis, when it comes to our field, you know, journalism, marketing, communications, it's it's hard to to get what we're worth, and then. Um, once once we're on our own, you know, freelancing or starting our own companies, you know, it's also one of those where you don't want to price yourself too low because your services are valuable given, you know, your years of expertise and experience. How do you, for those who are freelancers or in business on their own, how do you, how do you price yourself? Do you benchmark with others? you know, other black journalists in the field or, you know, thinking about, you know, the big agency numbers, you can't get them, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I guess I can uh, answer that question uh, uh, just based off of uh, me. I've always tried to give uh, more of a uh, add value, basically, to, uh, to all of the services that I've ever, uh, that I've ever offered. Uh, I try to look at the uh, client and understand the client and, uh, and, and really I, I try not to undercut myself and, and what I think that I'm really worth. I really kind of strive for that. And, uh, and basically what, what, what you, what you want to do, it's, it's really all in how you sell yourself. And uh, you know, you can always price yourself higher than everybody else. You can be the highest uh, price uh, service in the, uh, in the city, but you know you have to look at what you're uh, what you're offering and the value that you're offering, and how do you you know set yourself apart uh, based off of what everybody else uh, offered. I try not to kind of base price points off of that. I mean, I know what I'm able to uh, to give. I know you know the service that I'm able to offer, and I try to focus on that to make myself stand out a little bit more than, you know, than, than others who may be doing the same thing. And I'll just add to that. Cause I just redid my price list because I was struggling with the value of it. And I actually, a strategist called me, told her, the Lord told her to call me, so I answered. And then she told me uh, where to take the, the price list, where to take the value. And that's based off, you know, the market, uh, what other consultants are doing. I also do media coaching, talent development. And it's like, I don't know a lot of people doing this. What is the value of this? And so um, I started with a few clients here and there to really perfect my program. And then I would ask them at the end, like I started like a base uh, hourly rate. Then I would ask my clients at the end, what, what would you pay for this? <laughs> okay. And then what else would you like to see? So a lot of it might just be trial and error for you until you get to a place where you really truly know your value. And once you know your value, stick to it. Don't cheat it. And just doubling down quickly, it will be trial and error. So you won't know until you start. So start market demands, consider your value, and make adjustments, pivots as you move forward. 
Yeah, I, I think that's important, too, because like Wendy said, you know, she ended up having to go outside of Memphis to fund what she's doing, because many times, and even my husband, he's an entrepreneur, he has a security company, people in Memphis don't want to pay you. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're like, man, we got the good stuff out here. And by golly, you're going to pay us for it, you know, uh, but I, I think everything you guys have said is really good. And thank you for your comment, too, Wendy. All right, we had another question. Who's that? Marvin. Marvin, we can do this really quickly so we can. Oh yeah, it'll be quick. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, my question is for Miss Thomas. Uh, excellent panel. I'm, I'm so inspired. Um, but Miss Thomas, my question is for you: as you uh, mentioned fundraising, um, when you have a product and you're looking for potential funders or sponsors, what sh- what what's essential to bring to the table when wanting to, you know, advertise or receive those funds? Yeah, so my funds, uh, MLK50 is nonprofit, so we're approaching nonprofit foundations. So you want to have your fiscal year budget or an outline of what you think your budget is going to be, a summary of the project proposal. They want to see where your money is going to come from, you know, what your plan is if you don't have the money yet, a business plan strategy, um, who you're going to partner with. So if you're like, we're going to partner with XYZ Publications in the next year, and here's, you know, an outline of our editorial calendar for the next two quarters. They want to see that you put some thought behind this, and you're not just kind of talking out of your behind. I mean, if you're starting from, Ben, cut it out. If you're starting from completely from scratch, I think partnerships are really crucial because it can show that you're networked, right, and that you're not completely solo. Uh, and they, those other organizations, if they're, you know, credible and strong can help give you some credibility when you're going to, to funders. And I'll put my email address in the chat if anybody wants any more specifics. I'm glad to tell you everything I know. Okay. Thank you guys so much for joining us today for our MABJ panel. That was incredibly inspiring. <laughs> um, I just feel like this was a word that I needed to hear.